this episode of the Antlers and Hicks podcast, I went full out deer nerd and talked with the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries Deer Program Manager, Jonathan Bordelon, about the annual Louisiana Deer Report for the 2020-2021 hunting season. In past episodes, you've heard us tell stories, but those stories were told with words. This one also tells a story, but it tells it with numbers. The Deer Harvest Report is driven by numbers and lots of them. The data is derived straight from hunters through the TAG reporting system or the Deer Management Assistance Program, also called DMAP. This data is instrumental in the development of deer season regulations throughout the state. If you hunt deer in Louisiana, from Galliano to Ida and all parts in between, this episode is for you. There's always a story, and it's my job to find it. This is the Antlers and Hicks podcast, the Louisiana Deer Data with Jonathan Borlaug. So this week's podcast, we're lucky. I'm very fortunate. It's something I've always wanted to do. I've been infatuated with this thing that the state does, and it is the Deer Harvest Report that they put out every year. And a lot of people don't even know what it is. I, I'm excited. And I was telling somebody, like, man, I've got the guy that's going to come in. Jonathan Borderline is going to come in. We're going to talk about the Deer Report. The what? And I'm like, yeah, the Deer Report. So, Jonathan, thanks for stopping by today, man. So to get us started, kind of give us a background and uh, tell me a little bit about the Deer Report. I've been with the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries for 22 years now, and the last seven of those I've I've spent working in the deer program. Uh, the Louisiana Annual Deer Report that we put out, it just archives a lot of great information about hunters, uh, about harvest, both on public and private land, parish-specific information. If it's deer data you're looking for, uh, it's, it's going to be found in this report. It is. Uh, got a lot of stuff, public, private. I love statistics. I love baseball. So I love all the statistics. So when all this kind of stuff comes out, I'm, I'm constantly comparing and wondering and going back and looking. And this report really, it breaks it down, breaks it down really well. So what do you guys do with this information? This information is basically a compilation of more detailed reports that we use internally for both while it's managing seasons and archiving and tracking trends through time. But the report gives us something that we can actually provide to the public, uh, gives them some perspective of not only trends, but current harvest and participation, as well as what's going on in their parish or maybe on a wildlife management area that they're hunting on. So when the harvest report comes out, do you guys promote this? Do you do you let how do, how, do, how can somebody find it? We typically have not done a good job of promoting it. It's something we distribute internally to our staff. So um, we have wildlife biologists and support staff scattered across the state. They're working out of six regional offices. So this provides them uh, a good overview of the program and of the past year. Uh, and, and they are part of that target audience. But in addition to that, uh, we do provide it and, and have it on our Louisiana Department of Life and Fisheries website. Simply going to our website, clicking on hunting, then selecting deer will give you an option of things to view. And one of those will be reports. And within those reports is the annual deer report. I got you. And now I did that, gave me this one. And I saw I was looking, let me see if I can compare. And you can go back and find the previous years and you can find um, the WMA stuff. I think you guys have that out. So there's there's still some information out there on the uh, on Wildlife and Fisheries website. So you're hunting career. Where are you from? Tell everybody where you're from. I'm actually from Marksville, Louisiana. Um, 
I've spent my life hunting really in, in multiple deer areas in the state. I've hunted on public and private land. I've, I've hunted on family land, uh, on hunting leases. And really during those years, it was a combination of utilizing all of those properties each and every season. And, um, you know, some of my more memorable hunts were with friends on, on public land, especially, you know, in high school or college or, or right afterwards. Uh, of course, you know, harvesting deer on, on your own family property where you're able to put some management um, efforts forth and then and then reap the fruits of those those efforts. That's pretty rewarding, too. And and just the camaraderie that comes from from hunting with with folks on a hunting lease, uh, you know, folks from different backgrounds, but all with a, a pure enjoyment for for deer hunting and a passion for the resource. Now, I've been to Marksville. I love that. Marksville reminds me a lot of where I'm from. Small town. A lot of people know each other. And once they get to know you, you know, you're one of the fans. Right. So but that's the the deer that you guys, the Marksville area, see is significant, not only just antler size, but body wise size. Can you tell me the difference between the deer that are coming out of the Delta body wise size versus the deer we have in the Piney Woods? Yeah, there's going to be a difference. And that difference, though, you really have to look property by property. Um, You know, there's some properties within each of those what we call physiographic regions or habitat types that don't really follow the average. So within areas where we would consider it Northwest Pine Hardwood, as much of area two is classified, there are going to be properties there that are capable of producing deer, obviously that are comparable to deer that would be harvested in the Delta. But when we talk about the average and you average the highs and the lows, there's going to be a, you know, a, a higher body weight as well as being diameter in those bottomland river parishes. And, and that has really more to do with the nutritional plane that those deer are living on access to agricultural crops, but also nutritious forest plants that are that are taking advantage of nutrient-rich soils to grow and flourish and provide everything that a deer needs to grow big in the form of a body or antlers. And But that doesn't mean that just because you're not hunting in that area, you don't have the potential to grow or uh, manage for large bucks. You certainly can. And, and there are lots of examples, even within area two, where hunters are harvesting deer well over 200 pounds. And certainly with very impressive antlers, uh, upwards of even Boone and Crockett in some cases. Yeah, we had a bet one of the better years. Just I do, like I said, a score for Buckmasters, and we have a little Union Parish scoring contest at one of the local uh, K and M Coffee Course and Camo and Farm, a little sporting goods store. The the caliber of deer that were brought in, it was really good to see. You had you know the it seemed to me the circumference measurements were were larger than I'm normally seeing in the past few years. Long main beams were coming in in multiple points. You know we had a wet summer last year. You know, it rained a long time and, and kind of had a little bit of that this year as well. So hopefully that'll transition into some some good deer again this year. It certainly has been a wet year and you hit on that because that's the key right there. It's, it's really um, when folks think about deer and deer nutrition, they, they really should think about the forage that deer are they're eating. So it's going to be those forest plants. While the plants themselves are going to have varying degrees of nutrient availability, regardless of the plant and its nutrient profile, that nutrient is going to be highest in that growing tip. So growth is the requirement, regardless of that plant. Certainly in the most nutritious plants where deer are going to the, the benefit or the bulk of nutrients, that growth is what is what's important. So 
wet summers that we had the last couple of years have certainly promoted or at least allowed plants to continue to develop and put on new growth through the summer, which in turn raises that nutritional plane for deer in a time at which it can become somewhat limited under under drier conditions. Now, would the wetter, would that help? the does and the fawns as well as the bucks because I, I was brought up that the doe what the stresses that she goes under is going to make what that deer is going to be that the doe has to have something to eat you know and if that doe is struggling the fawn she's going to throw is going to be smaller thus the deer is not going to be quite as large as he genetically could be yeah and, that, and there is a strong correlations and research has shown that through time um, deer condition um, is going to affect their not only their reproductive potential and output, but the size of that fawn that's being born, the amount of milk that that doe is going to produce. And all of those things are very important early on because there is a correlation between fawn birth weight and mortality rates. Regardless of the cause, we often do not know why, but there is that association. So obviously, if uh, if mom's in great shape, her bag is, she has a large bag, plenty of milk, and that fawn is born at a healthy weight, able to nurse right away, grows quickly, his chance of survival is 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 going to be increased and and that's what, what the objective should be. Let's get down to the report. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is the total kill. We've got the years here. And if you guys go to the report, you can see they've started tracking it appears in 2008, 2009. And in that year total, Louisiana had 1,116, 571 total deer that were reported. Then we come down to last year, 2021. We reported we had 88,256 deer reported. Now, that is the largest number we've had since 2000, was it 2010 and 2011? Yeah, correct. Um, and that is reported harvest. So those are numbers from both the license reporting system and DMAP, which, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. So those are those are known harvest numbers, uh, which are a little different from our estimated harvest, but we'll talk about both addressing the reported harvest first. Uh, what we saw early on uh, when the reporting system was first launched, it appears that, you know, compliance Compliance was was a, maybe a little bit better. We're not sure, but when you're comparing it to the estimated harvest, those first few years were some great years. 2008 through 2010 were the three highest harvest report years, and then we saw a a, a pretty substantial decline uh, over the next five or six. But we've rebounded uh, roughly when we got to about 2016. That that number started to turn around, and when we got to 17, we were back over 80,000, and we've been. There since. So what's interesting, we realize that it's only a subset. Not everyone obviously is reporting deer. We wish wish they did, but we're gaining and learning some valuable trends from this data. Uh, to the surprise of many, even when you, not only at the state level, but when you start looking at parish levels or deer area levels, that reported harvest, when you look at the percentage of males and females, there's often from year to year where there's actually no change. So the percentage of, of bucks and does, maybe for a deer area, it, it maybe remains unchanged from one year to the next. So while it isn't 100% reporting, the sample size at which you're 
you, what you're gaining data from is very substantial. And with that, it gives you some pretty good insight. And most recently, we looked at deer area four, where we actually had a limit reduction in that part of the state. And while we may not talk about the reasons why, I looked at the uh, percentage of antlerless deer or those that were in the bag uh, prior to that change. And then we looked at it the three years since, and the percentage has only changed by 1%. So uh, it's it's been a very, very good tool for tracking at least the percentage of bucks and does in the bag, even if it's not a total count of all deer taken. Uh, and then it also gives you some valuable trend data. You can see if that if those parish and deer area numbers are trending upwards or down, and, and that has provided some pretty good insight. So we, we kind of use this in combination with our estimated harvest. And while we didn't talk about the difference between the two, our estimated harvest is tied to a mail survey that dates back to 1970. So you have 51 year running trend data. So you're able to basically ask the same questions with a few added questions each year that may be unique for whatever it is you're trying to answer. But the core fundamental questions that are asked each year focus on, did you hunt? What species? What weapon did you use? How many of whatever it is that you were hunting did you harvest? And that that stuff has been asked now for 51 years, and it's been asked to 6% of license holders. So it's a subset, but it's considered to be significant, and it has been fairly reliable. The data does line up well from year to year, which gives us some pretty good confidence in it, uh, as well as some of the other statistics that are associated with the numbers that it generates. But getting back to that harvest data, yes, uh, 88,000, it was actually the highest reported harvest in the past 10 years. So when we're talking about the last 10 years, that was the, the highest reported, uh, which is which is encouraging and, and great to talk about. Over that same 10-year period, though, we've actually seen a decline in hunter numbers. So we're seeing... Um, you know, lines basically heading in two different directions. We got hunter numbers uh, over the last 10 years that are trending down, but we have harvest that is more or less up and down. But if we put a trend line on it, fairly stable. So what that's showing is um, actually the number of, you know, successful hunters is, is actually increasing because while your hunter numbers are going down, they're compensating for that drop in hunter number and they're able to maintain that harvest level simply because they're harvesting a few more deer. I got you. Now I want to talk about the hunter decline later because I really want to hone in on that because that's, you know, that's, that's a heritage we pass down and are we failing to do it and what's going on? So I want to talk about that a little bit later. So we've got the numbers. Now you DMAP, the DMAP and the public, you can see that the trend is is kind of the same. So talk about DMAP. How, how alive and well is DMAP right now? DMAP is doing well. We don't have the enrollment that we had uh, prior to 2005, at least. Once we liberalized deer areas and provided either sex opportunity throughout the entire firearm segment, then it, it lost a little bit of the incentive that some folks were using when participating in DMAP because DMAP does allow for hunters to take an antlered or antlerless deer any day of the season as long as they possess a tag for that specific sex animal. But they also receive some technical assistance, it, but it's a true cooperative endeavor because while they do receive technical assistance in the form of habitat evaluations, the collection and, and assessment of harvest data, the state, our Louisiana Department of Life and Fisheries, actually receives a tremendous amount of known age harvest data. And it's a tremendous sample 
sample size uh, simply because when we look at DMAP, we roughly in this state, there's somewhere between 15 and 17 million acres of deer habitat, depending on how you classify some of the marsh, but obviously at least 15 million. So that's a minimum. And we look at DMAP, we're hovering around 1.5 million acres enrolled. So that's roughly a 10% sample size. And and when you're, you know, with any type of, of scientific modeling or any assessment that's done over that much acreage represented over almost every parish in each deer area of the state, it at least allows you to track known age measurements for deer through time. So when we're talking about what is the average year and a half old buck weight doing in a particular parish or deer area, that's where you would go to actually gather and, and, get, and get that data to make that assessment or analysis. And that that's really the value that DMAP provides. It, it just, it provides us that, that known age physical data and the known ages, which is critical because when we talk about bucks on average, let's just say for instance, a 180 pound buck that is eight point with 14 inches inside. Is that a large buck, an average buck or a below average buck? Well, in addition to needing to know where that particular animal was harvested, you certainly would need the age because if that animal is two and a half years of age, that is a tremendous specimen regardless of where you are in the state. If you're in the Delta and that animal is four and a half years of age and he represents the average four and a half year old and that is 20 pounds lighter, three inches narrower than what the average was just 20 years ago, then you can notice that that herd is actually in decline, at least from a physical, from the physical aspect. The animals aren't getting as large on average, their antlers aren't as large, their body weights aren't as large. In the case of does, when we're talking about lactation, you expect that doe to produce that fawn when she's two and a half years and older. So when you have a doe on a data sheet that is 100 pounds, it shows that she has no milk, she is dry. Well, is she four and a half or one and a half? Because if she's one and a half, she's 100 pounds and she's dry, that's more or less what we would expect, pretty much the average. If she's four and a half, then then that is a concern. And how does that compare to deer in that parish, deer area, or across the state 20 years ago? It all provides us a way of comparing through time. And it's the trend of everything. It, you really can't look at any one year because, you know, there's going to be those ups and downs. It's just the trends through time. And, and we're actually seeing some positive trends. It was funny you opened and mentioned with the Piney Woods and kind of loosely just lump in Northwest Pine Hardwood of Deer Area 2, since folks can familiarize themselves on the map with what Deer Area 2 looks like. And there was some conversation that the gap between body weights in four and a half year and older bucks wasn't as significant as it once was. In other words, the gap has narrowed between, say, Deer Area 1 and Deer Area 2. And it's like, well, what's going on there? So what did we do? We looked at, well, what's been the average weights for the last 10 years? How about the last 20 years? Well, we're able to do that because of DMAP. What we actually saw is something that wasn't really alarming. It was actually encouraging. We saw that those Northwest pine hardwood body weights had actually been increasing through time. So they're actually heavier. They closed the gap, but it wasn't because one was falling. Simply was one was outgaining the other. But when we looked at both of them, neither were below what, where we were 20 years ago. So from a deer health standpoint, those animals, at least the animals that are being harvested and recorded on that data sheet, they're in as good or better condition than they were 10 or 20 years ago. How would you know that? Well, the only reason we know that is because of a program like DMAP. So it's more than orange signs. It's more than being able to enforce trespass. It's about the collection of scientific data. And then what those hunters choose to do with that data will determine how successful 
they can be with the program. Because obviously, if you just collect it, but you don't use it or practice what you can learn from it, then then you're you know, you're you're just scratching the surface. You you really can use it to to kind of optimize your your situation or at least your hunting property or the, or at least the surrounding landscape. Now, I don't want to go too deep into DMAP, but I am curious, like a, a group that is in DMAP, do you guys when you get all the information, do you put it in a spreadsheet and in a report and send it to those people so yes. that they can review it? And it doesn't necessarily make it to every club member. And that's what I've learned through the years is when we work with DMAP and you're talking about at this time, roughly about 700 clubs. So there's 700 clubs in Louisiana. And I shouldn't say clubs because some of them are simply just individually owned properties, but 700 properties that are enrolled in the program. And each of those properties has a contact. So that contact is the person that we're going to be in communication with. And just logistically, some of these clubs could have 50 or 100 members. It's just very difficult to be able to communicate communicate, mail, that much information back in the day. Now with email, it's getting a little bit easier, but it's important if you're in DMAP, um, you know, to communicate with that club contact, whether it's the president or just someone that y'all nominated, because we do provide um, both written reports as well as computer generated reports that are just putting out numbers specific to their property and their parish. Okay, so now we've talked harvest, we talked total numbers, we've talked a little bit of DMAP. Let's get into the top 20 parishes. Now, the top 20 parishes that historically have always led, always led again this year. And those are what I've seen over the years. Those are the predominantly Piney Woods, larger parishes. Is that correct? Correct. And it has everything to do with the amount of forested habitat in those parishes. Uh, we look at Union, which is commonly, um, if it's not number one, it's number two. And, and this year it was number one again. And um, it, it's simply just the, the parish itself, large parish, just the majority of the parishes and has deer habitat. And with that, um, you know, it affords a lot of acres for hunters to pursue deer on. And it's important numbers to track. And, and we do rank them that, that, you know, by harvest, by parish, simply because a lot of folks, including our staff, like to be knowledgeable about how these parishes compare to others in the form of harvest or harvest potential. But when we think about harvest, it's probably Probably more important to provide a little weight to that number. And that's what we do in the next table. In the report, if you're looking at it, the first table you'll encounter will have the total harvest per parish. The harvest per forested acre will really be a little more meaningful simply because it, it gives you a weighted measure in that case. Uh, it's based on estimated habitat or forested habitat in that parish compared to the, the actual reported harvest. And I should say it's based on the reported. So this is a minimum sample size. So when we look at it, we look like last year, the highest ranking parish was Tinsaw, which is Tinsaw is typically in the top three. So it's not surprising that it was number one last season. And that's a uh, deer per 61 acres, which is very impressive. And, and we compare well to any state in the Southeast uh, or even the country. And again, this is a, a minimum, uh, meaning it's likely in, it's likely in excess of this. It's just it's based on actual harvest. It's not an estimated harvest number that's, that's extrapolated 
um, and, and then compared to that acreage for the parish, this is actual known harvested deer. So could actually be um, higher or or even greater than that. But 10 solid a deer for 61 acres. Thing is, um, even the top 11, you know, you're still at a deer per, per 100, which is from a reported harvest standpoint. Again, that's a minimum harvest number, you know, very, very impressive. And certainly um, as good as we've seen in the past 10 years. Yeah. And what I've noticed by looking at the report, like you can look at the top five or even maybe even let's go look down. Yeah, probably about the top 10 on the total harvest. Those parishes are piney woods, right? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, predominantly. Yeah. And then when you look at per forested acre, that's when the Mississippi Delta pulls in and those top 10 or 15. And case in point, union led total harvest, 4,074 deer. Well, when you flip it over to the t- kills per forested acre, union's number 16. Yeah, at a deer per 117, which is still still pretty it's respectable. Good. Yeah. Uh, considering that is, again, a, a minimum known harvest, uh, like, you know, the actual harvest is likely in, in excess of that based on mail survey estimate. But yes, you're, you're correct. And that, that is basically how it aligns. Mississippi River parishes in particular fare quite well, as well as just bottomland hardwood parishes in general. I will make a mention to West Carroll now is within the top 10 of harvest per forested acre. And you think back many Many of us, it, it has really did just in the last handful of years became part of Deer Area One. It traditionally had been its own deer area with much more restrictive seasons and more of a pioneering population uh, with just deer, you know, populating a lot of recently created habitats. So most of the forested habitat there isn't remnant forest. It's actually reforestation. So it's plantations that have been, you know, ground taking out of ag production and put back into hardwood, in some cases, pine in that parish. I could remember looking, it was one of the few parishes through time where it seemed like it was just increasing exponentially each year in harvest. And now that I look at it, it's it's climbing and competing with some of the top parishes in, in the state. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say, is it carrying capacity in the Delta is what's contributing to the higher numbers they've got? They can have because of the agriculture, because of the more, you know, more to eat there. They're, they're going to be a little thicker there. Yeah. And, the, and the, there's the habitat itself is more fragmented. So it's going to create more edge. And we're thinking about food for deer. Sunlight's going to be needed. So fragmented forest in itself, um, you know, it does afford that. In addition, that a surrounding landscape is is boosting these numbers. Because with agriculture, you're providing forage at least seasonally for these deer. It definitely enhances their their overall body condition and their potential for reproductive output. So it allows those forested habitats to support and carry more deer than they would in the absence of that agriculture. And then when we calculate these averages, we actually aren't calculating the averages within this. We're simply just calculating the forest averages that are provided to us. So utilizing just that forested habitat without the addition of the ag habitat. That, you know, certainly, but you're correct. It does. It it makes a tremendous difference just with that supplemental nutrition out there on the landscape. There's definitely a strong correlation. And it's obvious when you look at top five parishes, they're all heavy ag parishes. Very. And I, it's good to see Morehouse Parish at, at the uh, Kills Per Forested Acre at number nine. That's just right across the river. And, I, you know, that's that's good. It's, uh, it, it's kind of a transition area. You know, when you look at the west to east, from north to south, not very different. But from west to east, it's tr- it 
it's significantly different. You're entering some pine forests to the west, and if you're in the eastern part of the parish, you, you're looking like you do across most of the river parishes in northeast Louisiana. So it's a it's definitely a transition area. You know, being in the pine predominant area and with timber timber industry is my background. I work at a, a lumber manufacturer. The the timber practices, you know, we're in the business of growing timber. You know, and, and sometimes the, the carrying, it causes the carrying capacity for brows and whatnot to go down. What can hunters do to increase their carrying capacity on their, on their piece of property? Yeah, it, it just depends on what they have permission to do. If it's property that they own and it is not encumbered in any type of easement program, then certainly on forest composition, just working with a forester, prescribing rotational harvest strategies that are going to ensure that a percentage of their property is going to be promoting young and new growth, um, that would be you know recommended. There's obviously some intensive things you can do on smaller properties to help boost or enhance the amount of forage available for for deer and other wildlife uh, where you're manipulating the habitat just in the form of whether it's prescribed fire whether it's using hack and squirt, hinge cutting trees, you know, all of those things are going to provide forage. But in general, they're not going to affect the nutritional plane of deer on the landscape. But you certainly can enhance your own property, make it more attractive to deer, increase the amount of deer that are visiting your property simply because of the resources that are available. But when we're thinking about a larger landscape, conventional timber harvest is going to be the requirement simply because you're going to have to be able to manipulate enough acres over a large enough area to have an effect on on that deer herd i've noticed and i've I've even encouraged people you know don't plant the food plots to kill deer over plan it to get them through january february march until browse because you know i drive some of the most rural roads that you'll find and you'll either see deer late in the evening out in a pasture or right up on on the road in february and that's because people pulled their feeders out that's the only thing growing you know, and so if we can get some food sources, some some food plots in, I feel like uh, I feel like that'll help a little bit. You know, to kind of get those guys through some of that hard time. Having a game plan for the forest, of course, if it's lease land, um, you know, you may have very little in the way of options. But certainly, where you do have those options, um, you know, having a plan and, and addressing those seasonal needs, uh, and that's something where a trained wildlife biologist, our agency actually does provide technical assistance to land. Landowners. So, if it is something that they're seeking, whether it's help with uh, with just basic recommendations to how to maximize their property for deer and other wildlife, that is certainly something our agency could assist them with. When you sent me this report, there's one thing that I, I picked up on real quick, and you thank you for going in. You did some work. So you did some extra work for me. Let's get to the weapons used. This was really interesting to me. I love archery, man. I'm I'm into it, and I've always been an, uh, a fan of it. When we break it down by what weapons were used, of course, modern firearm, year in, year out, is going to be the big one. It is. It, it's the driver. It's typically con- it accounts on average for 80% of the harvest. This past year, it was 78%. So pretty close to what we see each and every year. Primitive firearm, obviously, uh, you know, folks are pretty familiar. That has become a a very liberal uh, allowance as far as the weaponry, uh, magnified scopes that can be used. And it it accounts for 11%. Bow and arrow is at seven and crossbow is at four. So when we're looking at it, crossbow and traditional bow and arrow whether it's compound or longbow, those are all grouped into bow and arrow, and those are at 7 and 4% respectively. So 
Crossbow uh, still has not surpassed bow and arrow. A lot of archery hunters have remained traditional to their weapon of choice. And as a result, you know, we're seeing that that pretty consistent percentage year in and year well, out. I'll tell you, it's not for lack of good products from crossbows because uh, my dad, he, he's got his shoulders. He can't draw back anymore. So he, he's got a Raven crossbow and that thing is fast as lightning and smooth to shoot. So they've got some great quality products. But like you said, you know, the, the uh, vertical bow and arrows really is twi- almost twice as much as what crossbows are. Right, it is. And while it's not twice as much each year, uh, it still surpasses it from year in and year out. So it, it hasn't replaced the conventional bow and arrow by any means. Now, do you remember what year we went from muzzleloader to primitive? Yeah, there were various changes through time. We've gotten more liberal over the years uh, when it comes to those allowances. But, you know, kind of dating back into the earlier 2000s, 2005 time frame, 2008, there were some other significant changes. So when we look at this data, Especially when we look at primitive firearm harvest, really, if you want to compare apples to apples, it, it you know you could look at the last ten years certainly, but you know going back beyond two thousand eight, you know, maybe two thousand five would be a stretch. Then then you're getting back into tr- traditional black powder and yeah. Yeah, I was looking in 2011 was the highest uh, archery percentage, and it was at 11 percent. So it trended up. It went 2008, it went six and nine, it went nine and 10, it went nine and then 11. Yeah, and 11, it went to 11 percent. And, you know, we're climbing and it was like the bottom fell out and it dropped back down to six. And it really has it. This is the first year it was above six uh, since 2011. I think it's because you guys don't give us but one week. That's, that could be it. I'm just giving you a hard time. That could be it. The season is, it's just tremendously liberal for firearms. And as a result, it's a weapon of choice for obvious reasons. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I looked one time. We have one of the largest seasons for firearms in the country. You know, I think yeah. like South Carolina or somebody's got is one that's way up there, but we're up there not too far off. Why is that? It's an interesting dynamic. You know, we've always had these liberal opportunities, lots of days. And then within that, you know, hunters more or less self-restrict themselves to a degree. Of course, we have daily bag limits and season bag limits. So those are built in. And especially now with tagging, we're finally able to at least enforce some of those. But the, the ideal in the southeast is, you know, you had the liberalization of these seasons and they were predominantly bucks only early on, if you remember. And that wasn't unique to Louisiana. That was a, most of the country, but especially the southeast. And our season here in Louisiana really compares best to the southeast. Because when you get into the Midwest, along the East Coast, the Great Lakes states, obviously anyone who's traveled to any of those to hunt realize that the season structure is very, very different. But Southeast in general, we've had long liberal seasons provide lots of opportunity. But think about many of the hunters that you probably encounter or talk to. The conversation often isn't how many deer they've killed, but it, it may be at the end of the hunt. It's not, did you kill something today? It was, what did you see? And there's such a passive nature to it. Even to the point now, we've gone to um, either sex each day of the season with the exception of two deer areas. So eight of the 10 deer areas, you can take an either sex deer any day of the season. And um, while that wouldn't seem sustainable or even possible, you look at what's happened since we've gone that route and the antlered or buck harvest has consistently exceeded the antlerless harvest, even in each parish. So there isn't a parish in Louisiana where the 
doe harvest or female harvest exceeds the buck harvest. Yeah, I think I saw it was like so 55, 45, something like that. There's self-imposed, uh, whether it's personal, the property, the hunting club, regardless, we basically give people a long, wide season to pursue these deer. And um, for the most part, they're setting restrictions within the parameters that we've provided them. And the exception are some of these public areas, obviously on your hunting lease, or the property you own, you may enjoy seeing a certain number of deer. You may choose to harvest a certain age animal. You may choose to harvest a certain number of female deer, depending on the amount of browsing pressure, whether you can grow a food plot or they're eating it all to the ground two days after it emerges. So all of those things may dictate, you know, how many you would decide to harvest. And public areas are a little bit different. And that's why, because you don't have that same self-regulation or at least the ability of everyone to have a consistent approach in harvest, we have traditionally much shorter seasons. And that would be what you would envision would be necessary on all lands in Louisiana. But what we've seen, and it's well documented, and it's obvious in the data that we're looking at here, is that there is a self-restriction. So this liberal season allows you to harvest some antlerless deer, possibly early on before the rut, before they're bred. You can do some herd management and you can put a deer in the freezer. You can take advantage of that before, you know, while resources are still plentiful, but the season is still so long that you'll get an opportunity to hunt the rut and maybe have a chance to harvest the more mature animals simply because you're able to hunt that rut with a firearm. In Louisiana, our rut is all over the place, depending on where you are. And, and that also factors into these seasons. It's like, while we do have 10 deer areas and many of them have dates that closely mirror one another, there's small, subtle differences in the seasons between each. But if you're talking about Southwest Louisiana, there's breeding that initiates in late September, certainly about early to mid-October. So in the Western parishes of Louisiana, October, even Halloween, um, that can be prime time. Other areas, it's November, certainly very familiar with places that are December. So it's depending on where you are in the state. Of course, the river parishes in parts of Southeast Louisiana and the Florida parishes, January, you know, that's the month. If you do not get to hunt until Christmas, you probably haven't missed much in the form of, of being able to get after a, a mature buck or just a buck in general. You know, with that, having these long seasons, you know, with multiple parishes in there, you have a little bit varying rut across maybe a deer area, such as deer area two, where you might have parts of Vernon where the peak of breeding is occurring in late October. And then you go to a parish like Red River Parish in deer area two, maybe early December. And then you move your, your way into when it's more of a Thanksgiving. So all of those are in that same deer area, but the season begins in October, runs into early January. It basically captures the rut for everyone and provides lots of opportunity. Yeah, it, it's the way public land is in Louisiana. A, a person, if they're willing to travel and give up time, can stay in the rut almost all year long. They could. It's possible. And there's public areas, as you mentioned, in southwest and west Louisiana that offer great opportunity uh, early on. And you you're able to hunt that rut and certainly follow it all the way to January with these uh, Mississippi River WMAs. Now, is there any other state that has such a spread out rut like us? There are a few other Gulf states certainly that do. And Florida would be the most extreme where it's almost uh, it's it's unfathomable. There's when the rut occurs there. But I think there's some latitude that factors into that. So but it's not simply unique to Louisiana, but certainly as you move your way northward in the U.S., it becomes much more defined. 
and then uniform across a state to the point of which many states, whether you're in the Midwest or further north, their rut is occurring in a very narrow period of time. So there isn't four months of peaks depending on where you are in that state. It basically statewide occurs at one time. And in our state, I mean, it's really uh, speculative, but different things have happened. You have to kind of look at the history of whitetails and it may have been covered on podcasts before, but in the early 1900s, um, and it's well documented, not just here in Louisiana, but in general across the Southeast, whitetail numbers were just a fraction of what they are today. And you look at our state, um, they initiated stocking in 1949 and, and that went on through 1969. And during that 20 year period, they moved deer from areas that were, um, you know, that had a population large enough to sustain capture and removal. They stocked them into some areas that actually had no deer at all. They had available habitat, but they really didn't have the presence of deer. And you can look at our breeding map, which is also available on our Louisiana Department of Life and Fisheries website, and it's color coded. And those colors correlate with different dates on the legend that show peaks of breeding or peak conception dates. And when you look at the um, the map itself, you'll see some uniformity. You'll see that it's you know, it's pretty early. The colors are early for Southwest. They're the latest along the river in some of the Florida parishes. But there's like these islands of color, like what are they doing there? And you can actually tie some of those islands of color, those unique breeding times to historical stocking sources. So deer that were in East Feliciana that were stocked for Red Dirt Preserve, part of the Kasachi National Forest, the deer that were moved from that preserve into East Carroll actually retained the same breeding chronology, even decades later. Uh, that breeding chronology persisted. Now, what's going to happen through time? You know, all of this is melting together. We likely just haven't been around long enough to observe that, you know, will there be a, you know, a blending of that through time? Possibly, but it's not something we've seen in this short, you know, period from restocking to present. So there's still a significant difference in breeding dates across Louisiana. And some of it was believed to historically be tied back to, you know, just what was animals had adapted to, to make them more successful. Obviously in the North, you do not want to give birth to fawns at the end of the summer. If you do, their body weight going into the winter when it's going to snow, you know, their legs are shorter, their body weight, their ability to stay warm, retain heat, they're going to be at a tremendous disadvantage. Uh, But here in the South, you think about along the Gulf Coast, is that really significant if you're a deer in Cameron Parish? And, you know, probably not. I don't think you have to navigate the snow, you know, when you're born. But what's going on on the landscape as far as through time, traditionally, whether it's storm surge and hurricanes, whether it's flooding from rivers. You know, all of those likely, there were times at which if you were at a certain time, your chance of survival was probably greater. If you were a deer in the Mississippi River Valley in the floodplain, if you were born in April each year, uh, life was probably, you were probably going to get wiped out yeah. most years, if not all. You know, likely the the landscape, it's not that the deer decided to do this, obviously. It's just, just adaptive survival through time. The animals that bred later were more successful, passed on through time, and they retained that chronology. And what we've done since then is we stirred the pot when we relocated deer in an effort to repopulate portions of the southeast. And, and now we have this hodgepodge that makes it a little more difficult, but it's likely tied back to some of the reasons why we saw such a difference. It was likely just adaptive strategies that that deer developed through time. So if I'm hunting and I've had this happen to me before, and I know a couple other people in this area have had this happen, and it's early, mid-December, let's say second week, not December, October, 
And here comes a spotted fawn. I mean, and this thing is covered like it's August. That could be some of that restocking effort from maybe one of the river parishes over. It possibly could be, but there are so many, there's so many nuances. The one of the more obvious you would have to know is is how old is mom? Is is was mom a one and a half year old? Was she a two and a half year old? There's, you know, a small a very small percentage of doe fawns that are gonna be bred that first year. They'll reach a body weight and sexual maturity at a time at which bucks would still have testosterone levels high enough to cause them to pursue those deer and breed them. And because she would come into estrus much later than the majority of deer for that breeding area, uh, you can see something like that where she may have come into estrus two months later. She's bred, gives birth to a fawn. That could be some of it. And then others, it could simply be the fact of these deer are coming into estrus, you got a 24 to 48 hour window there at which they're receptive. Are they all bred? You know, it, you know, what are the buck to doe ratios? Um, you know, is there anything there? Is there something from a health standpoint? Did that egg not not fertilize or did it not attach properly? Did 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 she have then she then reovulate a month or two months later and was bred, you know, during that time? So you really kind of have to look at the averages. So Sample size is everything. We see those individual animals and we do never fails. We'll get a game camera picture and it's December and it's a spotted fawn and someone wants to push the season back to, you know, later than what it even is and delay the start of it till Christmas. And, and just based on what in many cases are outliers and, and not necessarily representing the average. So the average is, is pretty important. And, and there's a lot of breeding data. We've done herd health checks dating back for decades now. There's opportunities just this year alone. I don't even remember off the top of my head how many breeding dates I got just from roadkill deer. And that was partially tied to uh, an increased effort to conduct CWD or chronic wasting disease surveillance on roadkill deer. And if it was in a parish at which the timing worked out to where you had a roadkill doe, but it was a time at which they should have been carrying a fawn, then we took advantage of that opportunity to get an additional breeding date. So we've gotten and we continue to get those breeding dates. And what we do see is it's it's pretty consistent for a particular site and not necessarily even a parish, you can have those lines can blur quickly. And you'll look at that deer area map on, on the uh, website and you'll notice, um, you know, wide swaths of a certain color, meaning that breeding dates across a pretty large area are consistent. Then all of a sudden the color changes and it's like, what's going on there? Um, you know, obviously that's just, um, you know, there's going to be some melting in those locations and you're going to see some odd things and, and that could, so there's, there's all types of things that, that can contribute to to what you were describing. Uh, but those would be a couple of my top guesses, simply a doe that possibly did not get bred during her first estrus cycle or possibly even a year and a half old doe that could have given birth. And that in those two things right there could account for, more likely would account for that later observed fawn. Well, guys, we actually had enough information for two podcasts with Jonathan. And next week, he'll be back to talk about the public land data, trophy hunting, and everybody's favorite topic as of late, hogs and bears. We'll also hear from one of the best hog trappers in North Louisiana about his journey trapping the worst thing to happen to this state since Nick Saban left LSU. Be sure to come back next week, guys. And thanks for the support.